0: welcome back to the brew theology podcast this episode was originally recorded in december of 2019 please join us as we talk with dr Tad delay about the evangelical capitalist resonance machine this is part one of two
1: welcome back to the brew theology podcast ryan here janelle here and we are with tad delay that's me. For the second time around, you can go back to episodes, I believe, 76 and 77. I could be off. We talked about unconscious bias and political tension. It's a good episode. So you can hear more about like Tad's background there. We talk a lot about his history, who he, who he was and who he is. We're not going to fully get into that tonight, but great to have you back. <laughs> tonight we're talking about the evangelical capitalist resonance machine, mm-hmm. energy, borders, and... Ding, ding, ding. Climate change, everyone. And Janelle is very, very prepared because she's got a book over here with (laughs) notes and diagrams and all kinds of fun stuff. And Tad is like a walking, talking encyclopedia of information. So this is going to be a great episode. If you like this, make sure you share it on the line afterward. We're at Brew Theology on Instagram and Facebook, underscore on Twitter. And then you can find out how to partner with us, start a chapter in your local community, over on the brewtheology.org website, or you can email Janelle or Ryan at brewtheology.org. And yeah, just like us on the Facebook and share it. And you know, that's how the world is just happier because of all this depressing talk. You know, Facebook <laughs> at least makes you happy when you like things like brewtheology.
0: Okay. Does it? We'll go with makes that. Makes us happy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go it with it.
1: <laughs> the, the idea of happiness, okay? <laughs> okay, all
0: right. Well, so we're so glad to have you here again. Thanks for having me on again. We met Tad the first time. When was this? Was this twenty sixteen? Was that beer camp in LA? It
1: was a while back. Trip, if you're listening, which you're not, he's probably like just waking up in Scotland right now. But I was Humbrew Christianity (laughs) out in Redondo Beach, California. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where yeah, that's where you met. Trip out there, right?
2: Perhaps, yeah, yeah. We met when, Claremont, yeah. We met, yeah, somewhere in there. In in my, day. I spent my whole like twenties in in Los Angeles, so we, we met somewhere out there,
0: yeah. yeah. And then you ended up in Denver with us. Now I'm here, so yeah. that was awesome. So yeah. And then, t- Just go ahead and introduce yourself. What are you doing now? Okay, Where?
2: okay, yeah. I so I I live in Denver. I teach at a few different colleges here and one in Michigan. I teach philosophy and religious studies. I Let's see. Um, I don't know. uh, It's like... What uh, see? I write books. Um, I I stayed in school for too long and ended up getting too many degrees. And um, so yeah, yeah. Oh, um, so I, I have a master's in theology, a, a master's in philosophy, and a doctorate in philosophy of religion and continental philosophy. And uh, I just finished my third book, which is called "Against What Does the White Evangelical Want?" And it has five chapters that are called "Against Future," "Against Knowledge," "Against Sexuality," "Against Reality," and "Against Society." And it's about all of the uh, weird opposition and all of this—I uh, don't know, like weird kind of um, uh, the 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 way that nobody can make sense of everything and nothing matters and none of the rules matters and nothing makes sense anymore. So yeah. uh, I guess that's that's generally what it's about. So <laughs>
1: and yet this against campaign has seemed to work. Uh, yeah, apparently. Yeah, yeah so, so. In, in a successful sort of capitalistic. Way that we're going to be talking tonight? Uh, yeah, I,
2: uh, yeah, 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 no, You don't want to get me off on a rant on defining the the finer points of, of what capitalist <laughs> means according to Marxist theory or whatever, because I could become a geek. Really, really, really fast. fast. It would be so obnoxious. And, and we can bring Rand into it, would be, it, it, it would and then be, we'll just go off the No, it would be just nuts, yeah. yeah. Would, I would be very obnoxious and everything. But so, yeah, so this, yeah, let's get into actual things.
0: So. This rumored school in Michigan. Now, what would their mascot happen to be? Is it a uh, Wolverine?
2: No, I have no idea, actually, honestly. No, no, no. I think it's uh, It's like a knight. No, it's, it's a, a Trojan. <laughs> a Spartan. There we go. Yeah, yeah, Okay, yeah. Michigan State, if you're listening. That's right. Um, Ghost it Spartan. Iso. And, it's right. Yeah, so... Um, so, j- I... I, I am from
0: they, there. Oh, yeah. I grew up outside of East Lansing in a little town called Hazlitt. So okay. I was, went to Michigan State for all the programs growing up. So Oh, excellent. No,
2: I'm very excited. They just kind of asked me if... They they said they needed somebody who could do Freud and Marx, and I, I was kind of like, that's all I can do is <laughs> Freud and Marx. Actually, I kind of suck at everything else, so... <laughs> I don't um, think yeah, that's yeah. true. But. So so I'm doing Freud and Mar- I'm doing Jewish philosophy broadly speaking, which cool. in the nineteenth and twentieth century tends to be people who descend from Freud and Marx and then there's a few outliers outside of that. Yeah. So yeah, so that's that's what I'm doing there. And then here I teach intro philosophy, ethics, um the philosophy of religion. So I, I just I read books with kids and uh we talk about ideas and I I like doing that a lot and it, it feels like important work. Yeah, so. we
0: need more of that in the yeah, world, yeah. Yeah. for sure. All right. So. Uh, and we know Ryan's story. Anything you want to update on your label or anything?
1: I don't remember the last time I, I labeled myself on this podcast. Okay. So take a guess.
0: I can never put it in the right order. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> people were shocked. I think a few months back when I, I'd said,
0: uh, you know, I'm, I'm just,
1: you know, I like interfaith dialogue in interfaith community and I left out the other stuff. Yeah. I think people were like, what, what? No, no more anabaptist Method, you cost I was like, well, it's, it's in there, but anyway, nothing, nothing really new to report there. You know, I'm okay. still trying to figure out what it means to be Christian in the 21st century and, I'm and, right there with you. and hold on to these ancient roots in a progressive way. It's tough.
0: It's hard. Yeah. So I do want to, I guess I'm going to go do something new today. I want to give you the resources up front. Because we're about to tackle some really big stuff. And so, for those of you listening, if you are interested in knowing more about climate change and capitalism and Christianity, here's the resources on our curriculum this time. And the first, of course, is Tad's book, Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? Um, The next book I'm going to give you is On Fire by Naomi Klein. And this is about the case for the Green New Deal. It's very, very good. It's very good. It has... Super up to date information. If you're not reading the IPCC report, read this book. Um, it will have the most current information. Another one that several friends have recommended to me, and that Tad recommends, "The Uninhabitable Earth" by Wallace well- David Wallace Wells. And publish, then also,
2: like just January or February. Okay, so, so, so it's also pretty up to date, like ultra up to date. Like it has studies up to like late 2018. So okay, yeah, very and super readable too.
0: Okay. And then the last one is Capitalism and Christianity American Style by William E. Conley. So that's where you can kind of get a a grip on some of the wider things that you'll hear in this discussion. Um, But definitely, if you're new to this climate discussion, Naomi Klein is is definitely a good place to start. So, Tad, I'm going to let you start kind of where you started on Thursday in the in the pub, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. And you can just kind of go, and then we'll ask questions as we go through it, uh, if that works for you.
2: Yeah, sure. I Well, I remember starting with kind of this idea that uh, it, one of the quotes that's that's kind of resonated with me for a long time is from the philosophers Deleuze and Guattari, who kind of said, the fundamental problem of political philosophy has always been why do men desire their servitude as stubbornly as though it were their salvation? Like, how can you oh. possibly get to the point of people shouting out for higher taxes and less bread and to want humiliation not just for others but for themselves as well? So, so this is this is actually this is we treat this as something kind of new. And I think the the Trump era of like how can people possibly like want <laughs> their own servitude and like want to like destroy themselves and take away their health care or whatever. But this is actually it's a very naive kind of myopic, very recent way to look at things. Because that's that's always been the problem of political philosophy, and there's there's a number of different ways that we can kind of deal with that. But then I also kind of sit that side by side with when we're thinking in terms of climate change. Um, there's this quote that I love from I believe it's 1981 with Ronald Reagan's Secretary of the Interior, Secretary of the Interior, guy who's in charge of of drilling permits for timber, like for oil, cutting yeah. timber, for oil, cutting timber, drilling oil, natural gas, and all of that. And he says something to the effect of, you know, like, oh, I just don't know how many generations we can count on to still be around until the Lord returns, you know. Yeah. And you're like, I, I understand mm-hmm. that a lot of people think that, right? But like, my God, you've got to be kidding me that someone has that much power like doling out the the destruction of our natural resources on the condition that like none of it really matters. And and yeah. I think that like basically anybody who grew up evangelical. Or has like been touched by that world at all? Like understands exactly what that's like. And when you when you try to tell people that a significant part of the population does not believe there will be a twenty second century. People kind of laugh at yeah. you and think that like, okay, yeah, but also they kind of do and they're just making that up. And uh, and I kind of want to say like, no, there's actually a significant part of the population that um, whether they believe it strongly or not, maybe we can give ground on that. But like, I think it's important to understand that a lot of people do not care. Um, they think it's funny that people are triggered. They, you know, they mock <laughs> little Greta for, you know, saying "How dare you!" <laughs> you know, they they think it's hilarious that the Zoomers are are worked up about this stuff. Uh, they, you know, like there's a significant part of the population that thinks all of this is hilarious and not that big a deal. And it was kind of, I think, but in it during the Q and A, maybe it's a good place for me to kind of transition and see where we want to go next with this, but. During the Q and kind of lapsed into a memory of a, a survey that, or a study that came out from the uh, an executive branch agency last year. I believe it was a traffic study of some sort, like an agency or whatever. Uh, they the the short end of it is that they realized that they, they basically kind of said, "There's no chance that we're going to stop five degrees uh, Fahrenheit warming." There's just no chance that we're going to be able to stop that. So what we need to do instead is stop worrying about it and try to just deregulate and enjoy profits while they last because those profits Uh. are going to run down. Um, and just not worry about it because like the destruction that we're talking about is like eighty years off and so none of it matters. And to me that's the kind of nihilism that we that we deal with today is that we kind of think that, you know, there's the smarts and the dumbs, you know, and there's the, the the you know, the people who are clever and the dupes and our job is to kind of get the dupes to join the clever camp. But like what if instead there's actually a large Part of the population, and a bit inside all of us that just doesn't care, and and is is perfectly fine, kind of sleepwalking into the apocalypse. Yeah. So, anyways, that's, that, that's where I kind of started. That was that yeah. was my my starting point, and um, I, I guess to kind of like segue into either Klein's work or Connolly's. But yeah. um, William Connolly's is a um, John Hopkins political theorist who talked about the differences between triggers and amplifiers. And he talks about like an evangelical capitalist resonance machine where it doesn't matter that they share different goals. All that matters is that they have just enough affinities to kind of work together. So capitalism denies the future in a, in a figurative sense, right? That's, so it has this future denial figuratively in that capitalism has no incentive to think more than a few financial quarters ahead. There is like when we talk about extraction, like all of our available resources in the world are on the books with some corporation or another. We have to keep 70 percent of our known fossil fuel reserves in the ground in order to meet anything close to two degrees Celsius warming goals. Um, and we're not going to, because there's there's no incentive to do that. Um, however, if we extract all of our oil and um and and coal and burn it all, then we're going to something like an average of nine to ten degrees, and in the Arctic, it would be as mm-hmm. in, even more than uh, twenty degrees um, Celsius, right? Um, which is which is far beyond even the ability to avert to grow food anymore, right? Uh, like even just yeah. food in the ground, right? So like we will literally starve to death before we will extract all of the oil. Right. That's why it's so important to keep it in the ground. But capitalism has no built in incentive to care about that. So it will literally like the the oil company you know, heads will just—they'll do what they've always done. They—they they will keep ordering like the drilling process to continue, and they'll just stock some more non-perishable goods right in their bunkers, right? Yeah. Like, there's no incentive for them to stop. So that—that's that's figurative future denial. And then evangelicals, on the other hand, like you know, like they—they they deny the future in a more literal sense. So it doesn't matter that they have different goals. They have enough affinities, and and they can kind of work with those affinities together. And that kind of allows them to not care so much about the triggers for climate change or the amplifiers for climate change. And on this whole big resonance machine can end up doing a lot more damage than it could do. Uh, on their own right even evangelicals can't burn anyway right Right. yeah yeah but like evangelicals can't do anything on their own right they need the apparatus of a republican party and which which needs to be able to deregulate industries which needs to be able to burn carbon none of these are actually dangerous on their own they all have Mm -hmm. to be kind of working together in a big machine in order to in order to produce the danger yeah yeah
0: that's scary why don't you (laughs) um can you walk us through what the degree steps are um we've got it in the curriculum but I'll let you kind of expand on like what oh, yeah, happens yeah. at 1 degree, 2 degrees, 4 degrees.
2: Yeah, well you know, a lot of this is contested um but we uh well let's uh put it this way um about 40 to 50% of the world lives on a coast. All right, so we are seriously looking at situation. The, the IPCC reports, of course, are always very conservative. They're always like guessing like three feet. There's no chance by the end of the century we're just at three feet. Right, right. <laughs> uh, there will not be a beach in the world. I, I think maybe that's a helpful way to people to think that the, the last beach in the world will be the Great Lakes, um, the, wow. like where, I mean, except where the rich can pay to dredge yep. up the old coastline and have new private beaches that you will not be allowed on, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. But yeah, but just think like my grandson explaining to his grandson or whatever. Um, Um, You know, he will have to explain the idea that there used to be sand on beaches in the world, and and that will seem like a weird idea for a child. Um, So like that, that happens somewhere in the two to three degree area Um, at two degrees. uh, I mean, there was a whole big report that came out on it last year, and I'm going to I'm a lot of the details are going to escape me, but. Um, one of the more dire predictions is that uh, for every degree Celsius we increase, um, and one degree Celsius, for people listening that can't remember the metric conversion, is about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, so it's, every time I say one, you know, it's a, a degree, yeah, just, yeah, it's two-ish. Um, so, so do the conversion yourselves, but for every one degree Celsius, uh, our grain yields drop by about 10% so wow. that means that uh we could by the way in were by the end of the century we're on track right now for 5 to 6 degrees celsius increase which means that we will be feeding twice, well, 50% more people with 50% less food. Um, so that's uh, that's 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 trouble, right? Awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the Paris Accord said that we went into limits warming to ideally 1.5 degrees Celsius and uh, horrifically as much as 2 degrees Celsius. We're at about 1.2 already, so there's no chance that we're going to hit 1.5. If you add up all of the commitments of everybody in the world, all of the commitments that we're all missing already, by the way, Um, but if you add up all the ideal commitments in the world, um, sorry, not everybody's missing the, like the, like the developing nations and nations that are on the front lines of all of this are actually doing quite well. It's the, it's the developed countries like us that are doing bad. Um, but if you add up everyone's commitments, we are at not 1.5 to two degrees. We're at like 3.5 to four degrees. This is something actually Klein talks about quite a bit Um, in her book on fire. Um, So at four degrees, we're starting to talk about the entire collapse of regions of the world, Um, literally the evacuation of entire countries that will go north or south. Um, And our estimates are that anywhere from a few hundred million to as many as a billion climate climate refugees will be displaced by 2050. Um, probably a billion is on the, it's, it's probably not gonna be quite that high, but like Oxfam released a report last two weekends ago or something that said we're up to 20 million climate refugees right now. Um, so 20 million per year by 2050, that's about 600 million I mean, I mean, that's a big number, right? Like more than half a billion people are going to be displaced. Um, and the part of the problem is that there's no... Um, definition in the UN treaty for people who are displaced by climate. climate. Like, it's all about are, is your nation persecuting you based on your religion, nationality? Um, there's like two or three other qualifiers. I can't remember what they are. But there's no, we don't have an apparatus for a concept of climate refugees. So, what you get instead, um, what climate refugees look like is the Syrian civil war kicks off because there's not enough food, because there's not enough water, because there's a drought, because it's hot. Uh, and so you yeah. have millions of people flooding into Europe. And what happens? Europe puts up the borders. They kick people out. Uh, people drown in the sea. Um, it looks like people fleeing the Northern Triangle from Honduras or Guatemala coming up. And we say, that's a migrant caravan. Um, and uh, ever since 2001, it was since, or so, actually since 9-11, actually, so we have like the... The history of saying that migrants are like have terrorists and Muslim right. terrorists embedded within them right so I, I, I think it's probably um, I I, don't, I think we're probably a decade or two at most away from starting to see drone strikes on on migrants probably in Central America if I had to guess like I don't know why that that seems like a very intuitive natural step mm-hmm. once the, the climate crisis really picks up and the refugees start displacing um, and so however evangelicals reacted to the Syrian crisis is how they react to climate refugees however they reacted to trump saying that uh, the migrant caravan was full of terrorists is how they will respond to um uh, hundreds and hundreds of times more <laughs> like yeah. you know like uh, this kind of picks up like that that's how we're going to see it um i can i can even see a, a future in which like democrats stepping in as the voice of reason and the, the voice of smart borders um say that no like we don't need to be barbaric and hellfire drone strike caravans we need to put like smart drone sentries at the border that can just gun people down if they break the awesome. law. Quote unquote. Yeah, sorry, I'm like quoting here, but <laughs> uh but yeah, like I can I can kind of see that world taking shape. Yeah. And I think that the future looks a lot more like the Trump era than the Obama era before that. Right. And I, I think yeah. that it's important that we uh, not despair at that, but like start to take stock and kind of say um, kind of in the same way that like what, like good science fiction, uh, Ursula Le-, Le Guin says this in, in one of her books, but good science fiction, she says like, doesn't try to like pretend that the future will be such and such a way what good science fiction does is it kind of it looks very very closely at trends that are happening now and just says what if we took away all of the excuses and made it more intense right and, and, yeah. and basically put it that put those those current trends in a different setting and i think that that's kind of one thing that the trump era gives you is it kind of it strips away all of the reasoning like, it shows you exactly how stupid everything is. Um, and, and you kind of get to see, no, like, actually, like, cruelty is really, really cool to a lot of people, right? Yeah. Uh, there, there's nothing that can be too cruel to a lot of people. Um, and that gets justified theologically, and it's it's libidinal in nature, right? It's, it's an unconscious desire. And I think we kind of need to let go of this idea that there's some sort of shared common good that we're all just going to be able to reason and, and excuse our way into, yeah. Anyways, I feel like I'm talking a whole whole that's lot right. here, but you're
1: you're this, our guest. this is you're this, is, your this is very good. I, I'm curious if you could take a, take a step back historically in our in our country specifically, because that's that's really what we're aiming at right here. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, we're not talking about China. I know somebody brought that up yeah, at the yeah, pub, yeah. and we could talk about that later. But specifically in the U.S., with when I use the word evangelicals and when you use it, we're talking about the stereotypical, very MAGA Trump, uh, but yet yeah, church going, God fearing. Mm-hmm. Capitalistic, sort of like, uh, you know, pull yourself up your boot, put your bootstraps, kind of, you know, mm-hmm. that mentality. Uh, now, I, I don't want to. When we generalize like that, which we've talked about before, okay, I know it's not everybody, but it's still, it's a lot. It's a lot, and and that the people within that that world, in that machine, if you will, they need the other parts of the machine. So, can you just go back and where did this machine begin? How did it start? In what ways did a bunch of people who were looking at a sage from Galley? Who said, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit for there's the kingdom of heaven and, and reciting these creeds and singing these songs and saying, I, you know, I'm baptized in the faith of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. How did that get married to what we're seeing right now? Because they, they seem to be contradicting. And, and you, somebody who grew up in the evangelical world and yeah, yeah. all three of us actually yeah. would say looking at the Bible, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's that's dead on, right? Because the like kind of the weird thing that we need to wrap our heads around is that the Bible is probably the least important toolkit in, in in the construction of the evangelical imagination, right? <laughs> even uh, though, it's, even because, though it's elevated, precisely because so many of us know so much of it, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> it, you know, like I, you know, I I I grew up uh, knowing entire. Um, probably having entire books memorized before I really ever kind of gave much thought to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Um, so it's, it's, it's very easy to kind of focus on in select. Um, but no, I so whenever we kind of define what an evangelical is uh somebody will always jump in and say well, like aren't you aware that uh, the german iteration of evangelical was used by martin luther or something like that or aren't you aware that some of the people who like were abolitionists in the 19th century called themselves evangelicals and all et cetera et cetera uh nobody cares uh, yes like that's true but it, but it does not matter whatsoever right um that's not the same thing like it like is not please the same tell thing. me all about how you think uh, you know somebody who thinks that Black lives don't matter, or would have, would have, is, the, is somehow in the same tradition as the abolitionist in the nineteenth right. century. No, no, no. Um, the way that I kind of think of it is, in, and I am not professing to be an expert on evangelicalism. I am professing to be um, one of the best experts on white evangelicalism, and and that alone. Um, and I think that if you, I mean, any time you, everybody, uh, Tad's actually done a lot of research on this. Yeah. <laughs> just so you know. Oh yeah, I guess it probably sounds like very arrogant of I me. Mean, I don't know. I, no, I, I you, a no, but the, you really have. I mean, That's I yeah. have a doctorate in it, and I, I wrote a book on it because I felt like I needed to explore some of my own baggage a, a little bit more and answer some questions. Um, but the, I can't make sense of it. it, it basically, by the twentieth century, uh, anytime you get um, uh, white supremacy or um, uh, you know, some sort of I don't know, uh, you, you get like these like anti. Education initiatives, mm-hmm. white supremacy, Calvinism, uh, emerging libertarian thought by especially mid twentieth century. I- anytime you get one of them, you get like basically the others kind of in tow. And uh, the way that I think of white evangelicalism is that okay. First off, before I say what I'm about to say, because this will sound kind of weird to people, but uh, if you think that white evangelicalism is the same as as uh, black or brown evangelicalism, just go look up any survey ever on any opinion on anything, and you will see that uh, white evangelicals and black evangelicals are as far up are f- much farther apart than black evangelicals and like mainline Protestants or yeah. like like literally other faiths as, as as well right um, white evangelicalism is its own religion, and I wager that it 's more accurate to think of it as a theological improvisation around whiteness so um, yeah. one of the ways that I construct this is I think that we have to think of what white evangelicalism is today is Uh, an industry that emerges in response to, I, I put it really as integration of schools. once you get integration of schools, um, and then the civil rights act in the decade after that, so the fifties and the sixties, um, after that you get, um, uh, the emergence of the segregation academies to keep white kids separate. You get these weird tax exemption battles that start sucking in, um, not just Christian, uh, K through 12 schools, but also Christian universities, um, Bob Jones University is the big first like tax exemption fight. Bob Jones University, by the way, which was started after Bob Jones saw what happened during the Scopes Monkey Trial in 19... 19- 25 mm-hmm. and said like well now the north is coming for our religion because they're making us teach evolution and I just want to draw your attention to they were fighting over evolution uh, within three years of the height of lynching within five years of when all of the civil war statues were going up right like the, the fight over evolution was a proxy battle the whole time right yeah um, like it abortion was, is now yeah yeah but like abortion too like right um, so they were trying to keep schools segregated Randall Balmer is a is mm-hmm. a historian at Dartmouth that has done some work on this uh, people can look up his book that they you can know, Come, Or if you just Google search Randall Balmer, the real origins of the religious right, you can find like a very short article on this. Um, but basically everybody who would lead the religious right during the Reagan era in the eighties, um, during the seventies, they didn't really care about abortion and, uh, they were losing this tax exemption. Like it just like keeping school segregated was not a very interesting thing to most mm-hmm. people. They were, they were starting to lose that as a cause. At least people wanted to keep white kids uh, separated from, from the black kids, but they could no longer say that as much. So they needed, they realized they kind of needed a big cause, um, after Roe versus Wade happens in, is it 72, 73, 73, I believe. Um, he, So once Roe versus Wade happens, basically nobody cares. E- even the president of the Southern Baptist kind of says like, I've always thought it was uh, between a woman and her doctor and that is their business. Right. Um, well, Nobody, nobody really cared about it until 78. Uh, and then se- between 78 and 80, uh, Randall Balmer says that Paul Weyrich, who was the Heritage Foundation founder, mm-hmm. like the conservative think tank, mm-hmm. who's still one of the most important conservative think tanks in the world. Um, the Heritage Foundation, Paul Weyrich said that on some conference call, on some, he thinks it was 1978 uh, and he doesn't know who said this but on some conference call someone was just like well instead of like tax credits to keep schools segregated and like private ex- segregation academies what, what if we tackled abortion instead mm-hmm. and, and organized a coalition around that um, and way where it kind of says like nobody really wanted to do it because nobody cared about abortion. Um, that's putting it mildly, right? Like, probably none of them wanted to be in a situation where their mistresses, like, weren't, like, aborting <laughs> I mean, like, I, I'm just saying, like, that that's probably actually what was happening, right? I, I don't say that, Senate, like, I don't say that, like... Like, facetiously, I, I think that probably they were perfectly happy to be able to control um, women's reproductive systems in, in that other way. Um, but, uh, yeah, so they decide—basically, you get Jerry Falwell, everybody who's going to be an important player in the Frank 80s. Schaefer. Every Schaefer. Yeah, every, Frank Schaefer. Every single one of them, within two years between 78 and 80, come online and come out in favor of, of, of abortion, Early nineteen seventy eight, when uh, Jerry Falwell talks about the danger of the child, he's talking about the white child and sitting next to the black child in the school. By seventy nine, he's talking about the the child in the womb. Um, and Like yeah, so I, we're probably I'm, I'm making too much of this again, but um, the the abortion issue was cover for the uh, you know Roe versus Wade was cover. For uh, Brown versus Board of Education, abortion was cover for school segregation, and it's out of that that you get this emerging religious right thing. Uh, mm-hmm. You get by the nineties, you get the Christianization of everything—Christian, you know, music, Christian like bumper everything. stickers, coffee shops, stores, like everything is Christian. Um, and then by the early two thousands, and especially the two thousand tens, you kind of get this millennial backlash of disaffiliation. But it's all like this one big apparatus that I think really is best start it if you want to really and there's always there's always controversy about periodizing anything but if we have to draw a date to when right this starts i think yeah. it's most accurate to say it's basically a reaction to brown versus board of education in 1954 55 yeah. yeah 54 right so So that's the way that I think about what white evangelicalism is today. Um, So I think of um, uh, you know the first test of this as a political coalition was the Goldwater campaign in 1964 during the you know the civil rights act is kind of in full swing. Then we get Nixon running a Southern strategy where he's trying to get like Southern whites and draw them away from the Democratic Party into the Republican Party in 68. That's pretty successful. Um, And then I think Reagan is kind of a new turn in that. and And I think that like... Not, I don't want to say that Trumpism co-ops evangelicals, but I, I I want to say actually that I think Trumpism is the perfected form of white evangelicalism. Yes. So I, I don't, so when I, I tell my students, for example, I, you know, I, I said this the other night, but when we think about like why study religion today, well, you live in like the biggest period of migration that the world will ever see. So in addition to mixing new faiths that like in a way that have never been mixed, we will also see the most vile bigoted xenophobic reactions mm-hmm. against that and it's going to take a religious form some of the time so even if white evangelicalism goes by the wayside, I don't think it's going to, even though people kind of predict that no. it's, it's on its way out. Um, but even if it does, whatever comes next is going to look basically exactly like this, because I don't think that you can improve a whole lot on Trumpism. I, you know, and I think that that's kind of the perfected form of white evangelicalism yeah. today.
0: Well, and, and I have just a tiny window into this. I went to a very conservative school in Michigan where we went to college with the earliest tea partiers. Mm. And when that started emerging about 10 years later, people were like, oh, they're just in the tea party. They're just kidding. And my husband and I were like, no, they're not. We went yeah. to school with them. this I never honestly expected it to go this far, but like I mm-hmm. saw it develop and I saw the moral story that they tell with it. And the way this is about preserving. And this is the way about, this is the way of democracy. And this is, all the b s yeah, yeah to make this legitimized, um, and I always thought it was just going to be on the fringe,
2: yeah, yeah, you know, and, and even when early research was done on the Tea Party, uh, aside from prior affiliation with the Republican Party, the biggest predictor in the data was a desire for theocracy like more mm-hmm. Christian um, and, and like you know uh, which which is funny because it, like it uh, sensibly it built itself on like less government regulation like less government debt or whatever else um, those appeared in the data but not like Christian theocracy yep. right yep. Um, government debt was kind of down there with like hatred of black and brown people but I'm making the claim that Christian theocracy is a cover for hatred of black and brown people so, yeah. so like I, I want to kind of say totally. like yeah so, so the, the, the Tea Party movement was kind of like this first um, kind of novel iteration of what would blend into Trumpism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think it's interesting that it, it shrouded itself with libertarian rhetoric, right? And nobody, oh, cares, totally. nobody cares about libertarian rhetoric yep. anymore, right? Um, and I even talk about this in my book, like, the you know, the smartest libertarian, Milton Friedman, right? Um, you know, he kind of made his big splash. We're talking about like, what should the government role in education be? Um, and like one of his big kind of like it's hilarious reading how wrong he is about race because he kind of thinks, well, you know, people are free to choose you know, and have government, he proposes having government vouchers for the take, you know, Mm -hmm. which is very popular now, but he he kind of like, you know, initiates this idea and he kind of says, well, it's not going to lead to racism because like smart parents are going to be able to sway dumb racists to like not send their kids to Mm -hmm. dumb racist schools. And it's like, I don't know how you could possibly think that he literally published that paper one year after Brown versus board of education. Um, and you know, spends an entire the entire paragraph talking about race but um at any rate like the that libertarian element um was always blind to race and now it's disappeared altogether because it doesn't need to cover over for the racism anymore so um so yeah so that that's where you get like the strangely enough like all throughout the 20th century you always get the Calvinism, the white supremacy and the libertarian elements and anywhere you find one you find the other two Um, they're usually tangled up in education as well. And now we're kind of seeing the drop of that libertarian element and, but we're seeing the preservation of like highly evangelical and highly white supremacist elements, um, Mm -hmm. that are also very reactionary against knowledge, which is what I call my education chapter. Right. So, so yeah, I think it's kind of important to kind of think. What is, what is this moment showing us is actually essential to that faith, right? Because it's actually just the chosenness. Um, Jesus doesn't matter that much. Hell surely doesn't matter as much as they think it matters, right? Uh, the Bible surely doesn't matter. Like, n- nobody cares what the Bible says about treating the immigrants, right? Like, no. all that matters is like this this whiteness, this chosenness, this brutality, like all yeah, the, the judgments. And like, the those are the types of things that matter. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. The yeah,
0: wealth sure. is in there because it's the blessings of God mm. when we're wealthy and yeah, yeah. add that on top of all of the rest of this um, yeah
2: yeah it's a signifier yeah, yeah. Sure.
0: did you um, bump into promise keepers in your research at all
2: um, I, I remember that from my youth, and I started digging around in that a little bit for the chapter on sexuality because that's oh, okay. that's also like one of those situations where people are just constantly telling you the truth in an inverted form, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but yeah, yeah, but no, I, I don't actually talk about it at all in my book, but, so but I'm familiar with it. We yeah. did
0: a uh, our last class in college. This will give away my age. Was in '97, and my husband uncovered. Um, memos that had been published from promise keepers where Mm. they made a deal. Basically, do we want to, um, include black people in the movement or do we want to make space for women? And they chose to oppress women. But looking Mm. at that now, like,
2: yeah, that's cover. That that was cover.
0: It was totally cover. Like they said that Mm -hmm. and it didn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. Like that's crazy.
2: Yeah, no, that's, that's, I, I think it's, and I, and I don't want to say that one thing doesn't, like, like abortion rights, for example, like reproductive choice is, I don't want to like I don't want to pretend like that's just cover and nothing else, right? Like, there is, like, an enjoyment of controlling women's access to, like, reproductive choice on its own. Yeah. Um, but you can't make sense of the anti-choice movement without thinking through the anti-black elements yep. that have been, like, there throughout as well. So
1: Yeah
0: so complicated
1: yeah yeah <laughs> and, and there's stuff too that I'm sure unless you have done the studies like you have and that's been like it's, this has been your project you wrote a mm-hmm. book on this most of us who grew up in the white evangelical world even though we have removed ourselves from a lot of that I never would have thought about this I mean yeah, I, I,
0: even where I went to school like I knew about the libertarianism and and the wealth and the some of those the theocracy and even though the, the only black kids at our school were in the athletic department, like we talked about it. But after all, I mean, one of the sororities used to be an underground railroad house and our school was founded to be the first school that allowed black people to get college degrees. So mm-hmm. clearly there's no racist element at our
1: school, right? As long as you have your one black token friend, you're good. That's going to, you know, pat yourself but, on the back.
0: But like back then when I was inside of it, I didn't see it. I, right.
1: Yeah.
2: No, I, I mean, I definitely didn't either. I, I grew up in going to a, a private Christian, a private Protestant school that emerged in Arkansas during the decade that all of the segregation academies were really picking up. So uh, I it never occurred to me that like it was weird that I only ever had one or two black classmates at all. Yeah. Um, and that they also went to the white evangelical church that everyone basically went to. Uh, none of that ever would have. St- struck me as odd and I don't think that it's proper to to necessarily blame children for not getting right. that, right? Yeah. Um but we also never would have thought of of race as a systemic thing, right? It would have yeah. been like individual ideas. Um I can remember like um well yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's i it, I mean there there's so much to explore there and um, you know America has like a really big problem like thinking in those categories right like even the libertarian yeah. elements right which is ostensibly like very open we keep coming back to that <laughs> probably more than is worth it but um Kim Stanley Robinson, the author like he has a definition of libertarianism that he like kind of makes a side joke about it in one of his books where he kind of says, yeah it's it's you know, like you know government needs to stay out of everything except to have a police force to arrest my slaves right and and like I think yep. that there's a there's a truth to that. In that, especially in America, where like police forces come out of slave patrols, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, that's that's what we had a Second Amendment for. Is like, you know, those militias were slave patrol militias uh, and indigenous people murder machine militias, right? Like, like it's literally yeah. built into our constitution. That we need to be able to arm white men specifically to liquidate black men um, like that. You literally have that built in as as your Second Amendment right. Um, it, at least that's it's not the it's not the yeah. text, but it's definitely the subject. Yeah. Um, so and, and that becomes like the police force. And, and we and it's very easy to look at that yeah. now and kind of say, like, well, it's about being able to hunt. Um, no, n- no. I mean, it's been about being able to hunt for like the last decade, but <laughs> uh, but but that, but that's not that's not what the rules there for, right? And and it's yeah. impossible to interpret American history without thinking about those elements of of continual violence. In um, in and, and also like even, even if we go back to like Reconstruction right after the Civil War, if you if you read court judgments. Um, in the way that like Southern racists were arguing about like the relationship of white people and black people, even then they understood that on the surface of it, the argument needs to look non-racial, right? That's why you institute like poll taxes or literacy tests to vote um, Mm -hmm. because you understand that there's something really messed up about saying like black people can't participate. Um, So like even like, so this is, it's not like it's it's, it's okay. It's not like they were racist and like we're different now. Like they just did it slightly differently but for all the same reasons and basically all the same way that we do anti-blackness as yeah. well today. So,
0: so can we do a little so, rabbit trail there of, I, I like the way that you said that, that we, we can't blame kids for not seeing this. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how this recognition of, of systemic discrimination has kind of come to light in the last few decades? Cause even as, I mean, I, I've encountered it becoming a post evangelical and maybe getting into the wider world. But I also feel like we weren't, well, maybe I wasn't, or these conversations weren't the same even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe they were, and I just wasn't exposed to them. But I'm just a little curious about, like, do you know about like where this this conversation really started coming into kind of more public conversation?
2: Um, I don't know if I know enough about that to have as much to say as I wish I could say. I know, I know that from my perspective um, that none of these conversations about race would have anywhere near the amplification they have without the the murder of Trayvon Martin and Michael okay. Brown and Black Lives Matter in response to that, because I, I think that that's the moment where you start to get these terms that had been around for a while, like they start becoming more mainstream, like okay. privilege, and okay. like and, and thinking through like the realities of of like police brutality, and like what is what is the role of a police? What what do police do? Uh, to right. we, like you know we so for you know the first ninety nine point nine percent of our history we didn't have police but we had society so like the people just lay down in the street and, and wait for the chaos to overtake them because there was no thin blue line, um, right. or or instead. We're actually people perfectly fine. And then we institute this thing um, because of this other thing, because of this other thing. And and, and I think that the the conversations around race and and police brutality have been particularly helpful. Um, And I I think a lot of this is, you know, there's definitely, I think, something to the backlash against the first black president um, by like the overt racist, but also like white liberals having to kind of, uh, constantly get pressed with the idea that actually, you know, maybe when it's all said and done, like actually you're not that much different than the overt racist (laughs) in in so many ways. You need
0: to own your shit. Like, and that's going to be a long journey for you. Right. And Uh, you need to work on it. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Um, yeah. Like anytime you get, uh, I mean, and it creeps in in all sorts of ways, right. You're trained to think of as a Christian, if you're talking about personal responsibility, um, then like you're you're basically priming yourself to come up with like the next thing you're gonna say is', is yeah. gonna be something racist um you know so um uh, yeah so I, I don't know exactly where all to to go to with that but like I, I'm certainly glad that we're having, that conversation and yeah. i i've noticed especially like with my students when we talk about the invention of race as a concept which like if you if you go back in the literature you just don't find the concept of race be uh, before basically the slave trade there's there's some evidence to think that anti-semitism and the notion of like different blood between jews mm-hmm. and christians converts into different blood between Racism. blacks and and, and whites um, but you simply don't have the category of like race in the same way Um, until like, I mean, really like, uh, like 15th century, 16th Mm -hmm. century, like when the slave trade really starts like picking up. Um, and it's, it's not that people couldn't see skin color. Right. Um, but like if I'm asked to identify as white or black on a census, I don't find that odd. Um, it like, I will notice the question, but I don't find it odd. If I was asked to identify as a tall person or a short person, I would find that very, very odd. Right. And that's exactly as visible as, as skin color. Uh, But I would never think to identify myself as part of the tall race just because I'm six too. (laughs) Right. Like, so, so like the, so race as, as a concept, as the way that we use it. Enters at a particular point, and it's not that people got racist, and so we like, um, you know, we, we speaking as like a white person and like a, a white Western European um, person. Um, it's not that we were racist and invented slavery because we were racist. It's we invented slavery and invented racism to justify that slavery, mm-hmm. right? And in the moment that that starts, you know, going by the wayside, we also invented phrenology in a particular century, right? We didn't have phrenology at the beginning of the slave trade. We had it in the 19th century when people were starting to say, maybe slavery's wrong. And so we started having like white doctors say, actually it's correct. Like it must be this way uh, because brains are shaped different yes. ways. Like So so we invent different ways to think about it in time. Um, and today like one of the ways we justify it is is personal responsibility or like should mm-hmm. have obeyed the cops or, um, you know, if the average white family is worth $115,000 post reception and the average black and brown family is worth around $2,000 then it must be their fault. There's no yeah, structural reason, it. right? Like they, they have simply made the poor choice to not have $100,000. Um, it's, it's, that's the way that it's like insidious, right? Yeah. Um, anytime you get that personal responsibility language, like that's, that's a trap,
1: right? Uh, so, <laughs> it's a trap. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, how do you have these kinds of conversations with some of your uh, white evangelical friends who are you know, potentially open to, well, they're just open, let's just say that. You, we all understand there's certain people that you can't have these mm. talks with, But, I mean, you can't say, hey, did you know we're racist? I mean, that that just never goes well. (laughs) When's the last time that worked? Hey, you idiot. I I have a few friends that would probably
2: definitely call themselves evangelical but progressive um, I don't have any white evangelicals in the way that I'm framing them which is the, the overwhelming majority that are very conservative um, and that's it's partly because I have moved around and like changed social circles but honestly most of it's because they all cut me out the moments that I've started uh, reading books <laughs> so I mean the the moment that you start doing
1: philosophy junkies that's what it was
2: right yeah. well I made the personal choice to rebel against God by like reading yeah. theology at first right it was even before it was Philosophy. It was like the personal. You made the personal choice to rebel against God by having thoughts, by like reading theology, um, and so like that's that's your fault. And, and by the way, you should feel shame about it and all so, of that. So, so, have, so you, I, have you I had anybody kind of reach out off.
1: to you based on on the work that you've done? Uh, I, like every once in a
2: while, but like I, or are they people I also, who want to tell you that you're wrong. Is that- well, it, when people reach out with concern in this, I, I don't know, I, I don't have like a smart way to say this, but I think probably everybody from this world will know exactly what I'm saying. When people reach out with, I'm concerned for you. It's a mm-hmm. threat, right? Yeah, they, they, don't, they don't. It's not actual like concern. It's it's not like maybe if you've studied all of this stuff for like a decade, and I've never studied it for more than one Google search. You know more <laughs> than me. No, it's it's just purely like I'm right and you're wrong. Mm-hmm. So do we
0: need to pray the prayer? Yeah, just like, to can make I give sure you're you, okay if yeah, Jesus r- comes back. R-
2: can I give you an opportunity to to mm-hmm. admit that you're you're wrong about everything? Um, so like I, I find that abusive and and, so and abusive. annoying and so I just, I don't have a lot of tolerance for it. So if someone wants to, to learn and have a conversation, I'm very glad to do that. Um, but I'm, I'm not at a point in my life where I want to waste time having conversations with people who yeah. are determined not to know.
1: Yeah. And I guess I was just more curious about a lot of the people that I have, I have hope for in groups of people that are these progressive evangelicals, um, in their, um, they would still consider themselves theologically evangelical mm-hmm. and they have a heart for, um, you know, migrant workers and they have a heart for black lives and they have a heart for, you know, people who are going through a, a hard decision on whether to carry the baby or not. Like, you know, I think, I think those evangelicals do exist. Now they're maybe few and far between based on what we've seen in these. Steps, the, yeah. In these they're, studies. they're few and far between. And,
2: yeah. and I don't think that it's but, ideologically but, consistent, but, but it definitely still does happen. Yeah. Uh, but in,
0: but they
1: are, but I feel many, like those right, are the, but those are exist. the bridge people. And in some ways we, the three of us were, those British people, yeah, you know, before we crossed over to the dark side.
0: Tad, thank you again for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me
0: on again. Yeah. We we love having you. you.
1: Incredibly insightful. And if people want to follow you, where can they go?
2: Um, tad com, uh, Twitter. I'm at tad delay. Facebook. You can search for my author page. Uh, I have a personal profile, but I also have an author page with all my work. Um, Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find because there aren't that many tad delays. So um, yeah, but I also have a Patreon page if you'd like to support me there. I have some some extra content that I put out that I don't put out uh, publicly, Um, and uh, you can find my books uh, wherever books are sold. Um, You can give your money to the. The worst person in the world with too much money already uh, on Amazon, but you can also just order from literally any bookstore. They're always happy to have a special order books. Um, and I also, if you search wherever you get podcasts, if you search my name, um, I have a ten-part series because I, I wanted to. Um, the authors basically get no money for books, so I don't actually like. I would like people to read it because I put a lot of work into it, and um, but I also um, created a podcast, which is kind of a shortened version of my book. It's a ten-part one-off podcast that I'll never update again. Um but it basically every chapter gets like two or three episodes. And um so I, I wanted to give it away for free for everybody who didn't have the money or time to to actually go through a book. Um so yeah so Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast, you can search my name and, and find the Tad Delay Against podcast. So sweet. Yeah, yeah.
0: All right. Well All right. we'll put links up on our podcast of your podcast. So that everybody can find their way around. And uh, thank you for joining us. Make Uh, sure
1: you share this on the line. Share it, love it, rate it, review it. Thanks again. Cheers.